Please be seated. The reading this morning comes from Judges chapter 11 verse 28 to chapter 12 verse 15. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Arawah to the vicinity of Minnith, as far as Abel Kiramin. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, O oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched, because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and the girls went into the hills and wept, because she would never marry. After two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite custom that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jethro, the Gileadite. The men of Ephraim called out their forces, crossed over to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We are going to burn down your house over your head. Jephthah answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites, and although I called, you didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw that you wouldn't help, I took my life in my hands and crossed over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave me the victory over them. Now why have you come up today to fight me? Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. The Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, you Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim and whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked him, are you an Ephraimite? If he replied no, they said, all right, say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth, because he could not pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Jephthah led Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a town in Gilead. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem led Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave his daughters away in marriage to those outside his clan, and for his sons, he brought in 30 young women as wives from outside his clan. Ibzan led Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried in Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite led Israel 10 years. Then Elon died and was buried in Aijalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, son of Hillel from Parathon, led Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. He led Israel eight years. Then Abdon, son of Hillel, died and was buried at Parathon in Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a difficult passage, isn't it? <clears throat> so let's pray as we uh, think on it this morning. Heavenly Father, we've just sung about your word, we've just heard from your word, and yet it's a word that this morning is very confronting. It's shocking to our ears, it's hard for us to think about. And yet you've told us that everything you've preserved for us is for our good, for our instruction, to somehow give us a, a better understanding of you and ourselves in this world. And so we really pray this morning that you might help us as we consider things that we don't particularly want to reflect on, as we uh, think about what you have to say to us from this particular part of your word. By your spirit, please work within us. We need your help this morning. And we ask that you'd help us, not just in our thinking, but that what we think in our heads may overflow into our hearts and into our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's another passage from Judges, isn't it? And another sermon that doesn't require an interesting or funny opening illustration to try to draw people in to listen to the Bible passage. Because we just heard something that shocks us, that's confronting. Uh, we just heard a tragic story of a father sacrificing his daughter. We heard something that uh, shocks and confronts. It may make you feel unsettled this morning, might make you feel particularly uncomfortable and you have worries but you're probably not disengaged because it's very hard to be disengaged to a passage of scripture like this. As James said before, we've been in this series in the book of Judges for quite a while and all we're up to is the next part. And uh, here at St Stephen's we don't kind of pick and choose which parts of the Bible we look at, we look, we look at all of it. We think that all of it's been given by the Lord to us and so this is the section in Judges that we're up to. But because uh, you may not have been here for all of it and because you need to understand Judges to understand this particular part, I need to, to give a little bit of context. And so here let me give previously in Judges. Judges is the book of the Bible that tells us what happens when the Israelites got to the promised land. If you know the history of the Bible and the history of Israel, you'll remember that Moses had led the Israelites out of Egypt where they were enslaved. They'd wandered in the wilderness for quite a period of time, but at some stage they got into the promised land. Judges is the book of them being in the promised land. But they had disobeyed God when they entered into that land. That land had been filled by a number of other people groups, evil people groups. You may know some of the names, the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Amorites, there's a whole range of them. And they did some evil things. And the Lord had said that Israel should have got rid of them out of the land. But Israel didn't. They partially obeyed God, which means they got rid of some, but partial obedience is disobedience and they'd left many of those evil people groups around. And that had caused the Israelites trouble and difficulty as they lived in the land because the Israelites kept getting influenced by the other people who lived there. They kept on taking on their standards, their morals, their values, even their faith. And what they were doing was turning their back on the God who'd told them how to live and who'd created them and who knew what, knew what was best for them and they'd started living like these other uh, terrible people around them. And so what happens in the book of Judges is you have this cycle that happens again and again and again. Israel go bad because they start taking on these practices and standards and values of the people around them 
And then one of those people groups rises up and they enslave the Israelites. And the Israelites are enslaved for years until they get to a point where they're so low and they're so beaten down, they turn back to God and they say, we're sorry, please save us, please rescue us. And then God raises up a judge. When you hear the word judge, don't think of what we do today, a person with a funny wig sitting in a courtroom making decisions. A judge in this sense is someone who, it's a person of action. It's someone who came in and rescued, normally through war, through army and fighting with swords and things like that, uh, freed God's people, delivered, rescued God's people. So he would send a deliverer, the deliverer would rescue uh, Israel, things would go well while the judge carried on living but then the judge would ultimately die and things would go back again and Israel would start living like the people around them again, turning their back on God and it would, the cycle happens again and again and again. But, but Judges actually says it's not just that the cycle happens again and again and again, it gets worse each time. So it's not just a rotation, it's a spiral downwards. Each time through the book of Judges it gets more and more depressing because things are getting worse and worse. Well in chapters 10 to 12 that's the section we're in at the moment and chapters 10 to 12 are focusing on one particular group of people which is the Ammonites, they're the enemies who've been causing problems, they've been ruling a section of the promised land for 18 years and and enslaving the uh, Israelites that live there and the particular judge is a guy called Jephthah who we heard as Aaron read. So we've already looked at chapter 10 and most of uh, chapter 11, but we need to remind ourselves of it, even if you were here last week, before we pick up the rest of it today. We found out last week that Jephthah, this main judge, was from a region called Gilead. That was in the Promised Land, it was on the east uh, of the Jordan, and in chapter 11 we found out a little bit more about him personally. We're told that he was a great warrior. But more than that, we were told he was also the illegitimate son of a prostitute. And because of that, his half-brothers, who were the sons of his father and his father's wife, he's the son of the father and the prostitute, his half-brothers had disowned him, run him out of, told him he's not part of the family and run him out of town. So he'd grown up in a different area. But once the Ammonite oppression of the Israelites living in Gilead had become too much, they'd been oppressed for 18 years by this stage, some of the elders of Gilead had said, we need some help, you know who we need, we need Jephthah. Jephthah's a great warrior, that's who we need to help free us from this this situation. So they'd gone to him, to where he was living, to ask whether he could help them. They needed a warrior... He knew they needed a warrior and so there'd happened a bit of a negotiation where he got a good deal out of it. And what happened was that if he was going to lead the army, he was going to take over as their leader afterwards. So that's what was agreed upon. The first thing he did was he didn't march against the Ammonites. He tried diplomacy first. And so in chapter 11 verse 12, he'd sent a message to the king of the Ammonites saying, why have you attacked us? Why are you treating us in this way? And in chapter 11, verse 14, the king of the Ammonites had replied to Jephthah and said, well, you did it first. You took land off us, we're just taking it back. 
And then from verse 15 on, if you've got your Bibles open, you'll see that the rest of this section is very, very long. Jephthah says, uh-uh, that's not true. Well, if only he did say it in that shorter time, he didn't. He went on and on and on, arguing, showing why this was not true. He argued, if you remember, and you were here last week, he argued by history, he argued by theology, he argued by precedent, he argued by silence. This whole long argument saying, you're wrong. We never took land off you. The land is ours, God gave it to us, and you should leave us alone. So that's what happened. It finished with verse 28, which was, I found, both chilling and funny at the same point. Because after this very long, very clever, very structured speech of Jephthah's, it just says the king paid no attention to what Jephthah said. Which is kind of funny, but it's also chilling. Because if diplomacy's failed, you're only left with war. And that's where we pick the story up this morning. So let's, this is our passage. We've got to go through it in a bit of detail and then we'll think about what we can take from it. And we've got to think about what happens with Jephthah and his daughter and uh, be confronted by that. So end of verse 28, it looks like it's going to be war. If that's right, verse 29 is very positive because we're told the spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. If you're about to go to battle, you want someone who's got the spirit of the Lord upon them to lead the army. And so Jephthah advances with the spirit of the Lord upon him to take on the Ammonites. But on the way there, that's where he makes this vow. Have a look at verse 30 to see what he says. He's speaking to God. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return and triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Well, here it is. What's he doing? There's no reason to do this. There's no justification for doing it. What's going on here? Well, we'll come back to it. But Jephthah then immediately, the vows left behind, Jephthah immediately goes out, he fights the Ammonites and we're told the Lord gives him the victory. And it's then in verse 34, after this victory, that Jephthah heads home and this awful scene with his daughter unfolds. Now I want you to notice the way it's written. We're supposed to feel the tragedy of the situation. It's written so that we feel the weight of it and the depth of it. We're not just told that Jephthah's daughter walks out the door, we're told she dances out the door to the sound of tambourines. We're not just told that uh, Jephthah's daughter is his only child, it says that and then it spells it out even more, he had no other son, no other daughter. It doesn't just say that Jephthah was upset, we're told he, he rips his clothes apart because he's so distraught. As he tells her that he's made this vow to the Lord that he cannot break. Now she's got an incredible response. Verse 36, My father, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But please grant me this one request. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. Uh, I actually shared some of this with a group of ministers on Friday and someone said, uh, you're going to have to speak about the daughter there sounding conditioned by her father and forced to do it. There's nothing like that going on here. This is just an incredible response from a young girl who loves the Lord, trusts her father, and this is the situation she's in. It's an incredible response from Jephthah's daughter. Jephthah lets her have the two months, but then she returns, and verse 39, we're told he completes his vow. We're then told that she was a virgin, 
and because of, uh, uh, of what she's done, what happened here, an annual custom developed among the young women of Israel. It is a heartbreaking scene that goes on here and it's one that raises many questions and concerns. We should have questions and concerns as we read this. Now I'm going to pick up most of those questions and concerns in a moment because the passage hasn't ended yet and I want to get through the rest of the passage before we come back to this and think more on it. But I want to speak very quickly on one theory that people sometimes propose for this passage. Uh, It's become quite popular in certain circles and the theory is that Jephthah's daughter wasn't killed here. What happened was she was forced to never marry. And so as you read this passage the thing that's causing them great grief, the things that's causing them to mourn is that Jephthah's line is going to stop because he's got no other children, because she's not going to marry and she will never be able to experience childbirth or being a mother or anything else. Now this is, so it's not death that goes on, it's she can't marry from then on. And this is proposed for a few reasons. One, and I'm sure this is the main one, we can't imagine Jephthah doing this. This is the chosen saviour of God's people. We've only just read he had God's spirit upon him. What is he doing here if he did this? And so it's more palatable if it's just that the daughter wasn't able to marry. But there are also hints in the text that you could say uh, backs this up. It never speaks of her death in these verses. In verse 39, after talking about the, the vow being completed, it then says she's a virgin, which is odd if she's dead. Why would you mention that? And there's quite a bit of talk in those verses, as you may have picked up, of her being an only child and unmarried. And so all those things are added together for people to think, well, it wasn't that she was put to death, it was that she wasn't allowed to marry after that, and that's why. But as much as I'd like to agree with that theory, as much as I've hoped at the beginning of the week before I had to work on this passage to prepare a sermon that that was what it was, I can't go down that line. I don't think you can read it that way. The key is Jephthah's original vow in verse 30. It's to sacrifice whatever comes out of the door as a burnt offering. That's the vow he says in verse 35 to his daughter he cannot break. That's the vow that verse 39 tells us he kept. It's very hard to read it any other way. I would argue, and I'm going to speak a little bit more about this in in a a moment, but the reason it speaks about her virginity and uh, her being unmarried is to give the indication that she's young. This is not a thought of it's a 35-year-old unmarried daughter at home. This is a, a, remember they got married a lot younger back then? This is a young girl and there's a reason why that's important and we'll get to it in a few moments. But this is sacrifice. I think that's the only thing that makes sense of how absolutely distraught it is. If it's only not being married, it doesn't make sense of the tragedy or the the weight of the passage itself. Now, having said that, we need to carry on with the... We're going to come back to this and spend time on this, but we need to look at the rest of the the, uh, reading because it all fits together. The passage then continues... We're told in chapter 12 that some men of Ephraim came to Jephthah with their army. Now remember, the men of Ephraim are Israelites. Ephraim is one of the 12 tribes. So these are Israelites who come to Jephthah and they're angry with him because they say, Jephthah, you didn't ask us to help in the battle. Now remember, the Ammonites have been around for 18 years. Ephraim haven't done anything. But now that the battle's been won, now they come to Jephthah to complain. It seems that they're very jealous. Jephthah replies in verse 2, I did ask you for help, but it didn't come, so I had to do it myself. 
and there's some back and forth and arguing and negotiating, including, I think, some racial slurs, and then they fight. They go to battle. Jephthah and the Gileadites win the battle, and part of the victory is capturing the part of the land that the Ephraimites need to pass by to get back to their home. Now, the battle's over, but there's still obviously survivors on both sides and those kind of things. So, what the Gileadites do is, they've, they've got this land where the Ephraimites have to go back home. Every time a survivor goes past the Gileadites, the Gileadites ask them, are you an Ephraimite? And if they say yes, they kill them. It's part of the battle. If they answer no, they do a further test to see if they are one of the um, Ephraimites. The test is, they ask them to say a word. So they say, say Shibboleth. And if the person says Sibboleth, not Shibboleth, but Sibboleth, they kill them. I think what's going on here is, you know how there are certain, I have to be careful how I say this, but you know how there are certain ethnic groups that struggle with certain sounds. That's what's going on here. The Ephraimites can't say sh, So instead they say S. And then they realise that they're an Ephraimite and then they, uh, they kill them if they say it wrong. To this day, the word shibboleth is sometimes used in this way. Shibboleth has become, I think this is the only place in the, in the Bible shibboleth is used. And it, it's used today as a, 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 to speak of a point of small detail that determines whether someone's in or out, whether someone is orthodox or not orthodox, it's that kind of thing. We're told that 42,000 were killed that day. This is another tragedy. This passage is awful. The chapter, though, then finishes by saying that Jephthah led Israel, not just Gilead. He was supposed to lead Gilead. He ends up leading all of Israel for six years. Then he dies. Then we learn in the remaining verses of three other judges, but they're only mentioned very quickly, Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. I think the point that we're supposed to take from these other judges is twofold. One is, unlike Jephthah, whose family line has finished, two of these three are very fruitful. Uh, Ibsan, have a look, he's got 30 sons and 30 daughters. That's a big family. Abdon's got 40 sons, 30 grandsons, and they ride on 70 donkeys, so Abdon wins. The key, I think, is that, uh, that there's stability, though. Remember I said before in the book of Judges, it's a spiral that go, gets worse and worse and worse. Do you see how it's worse here under Jephthah? It's worse because now the Israelites are even turning on themselves. Now they're even kind of fighting against each other. But it seems that because of what Jephthah has done, it stops. It, it doesn't seem to fracture anymore under the next three judges. Although by the time we get to Samson next year, uh, we see things get worse again. That's our passage. What do we make of it? We've got to wrestle with what Jephthah did to his daughter. But before we do that, <clears throat> I want to challenge us to be clear that Jephthah is still portrayed as a faithful servant of God here. This is part of what makes this passage so difficult. He's still written of as a good guy here. Now you might balk at that, even as I say it out loud after we've just heard what we did. How can a guy who sacrifices his own daughter be seen in any kind of positive light? But he is. He is in the wider scriptures. Remember last week I said 1 Samuel chapter 12, when Samuel the prophet looks back at the great heroes in the past for Israel, he mentions Jephthah by name. More importantly, in Hebrews chapter 11, when it's that great roll call of faith, people from the Old Testament who've been good servants of God, they only name four of the judges from this part of Israel's history. Jephthah is one of them. So within the scriptures, he's seen in a positive light. But the, these verses show him in a positive light. 
This passage isn't presented as a wicked event perpetrated by an evil man. You can see that because the details focused on aren't the gruesome details of the sacrifice. Now, Judges doesn't mind showing the gruesome details, right? We've seen that before. Swords into fat people with blubber closing in around it. Tent pegs through skulls that go so far it goes into the ground. Judges is happy to say what it is. But the details that Judges in this part focuses on are not the gruesome ones. They're the tragic ones. They're the ones that show the sadness here, the awfulness here. We get a picture of a man who loves his daughter no matter what's going on and I think a picture of a daughter who loves her father and loves the Lord. He's shown positively in this text. Remember the first verse, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. That's positive. He leads a victory for the people of God. That's positive. When after he's had the victory in chapter 12 verse 3 when he's speaking to the people from uh, the men of Ephraim, he gives credit for his victory, chapter 12 verse 3, to the Lord, not himself. This is not a, a, a kind of show off, this is a humble man who knows how he's had victory. There are other ways though that we see how, how, how good he is. There was an earlier incident in uh, the book of Judges where there was another judge, Abimelech, And if you remember what he did, he killed 70 of his brothers because they'd wronged him. So he becomes judge and he uses that power to kill his brothers. Now Jephthah has been treated awfully by his half-brothers. They disowned him from the family, ran him out of town. He takes no revenge on them. We don't get any sense that he misused or abused his power for anything selfish. And even in this awful situation with his daughter, there's something noble, don't mishear me here, but try and understand the sense of what I'm saying. This happens because he wants to keep his word. He wants to honour the word that he made. Now you can argue with whether he should have felt he should have done it originally or kept it or not, but his motivation seems to be that he wanted to honour the promise he made to God. So do you see that although he does, what I'm going to say is just an evil, terrible thing here, the scriptures are very positive about him in other sense. And I say that because sometimes we, we, we want to make goodies and baddies. We want to make good and evil. No, no, in the scriptures, all God's people are fallen people and we all let the Lord down in different ways. But we've got to wrestle with what he did. What did he do wrong here? Well, have a think about the vow that he made. Again, I said before, some people try to get Jephthah off the hook because they say it wasn't about death here, it was about um, uh, not getting married. Uh, Other people try to get him off the hook here because they say the vow that he made, he thought, he expected it was going to be an animal. And so what he had in his mind was it was going to be an animal sacrifice and so he's horrified when he finds out it's something else. And the word used in verse 31, chapter 11 verse 31 when he makes the vow, whatever whatever comes out of the door is non-specific about species. So perhaps that could be right. But I totally disagree with that. Again, I'd love to go with that option if I could because it puts Jephthah in a better light and we can understand it. If you were going for an animal, you don't say whatever comes out of the door of the house. If you're going for an animal, say, whatever I see first, eating grass in a field when I come round the corner, then I can be sure it's an animal. And it's more than that. He says, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me. There's an intentionality and a deliberate nature to that. That's, that's not animal, that's, that's person. When he sees his daughter, 
come out. I don't think we're supposed to read it and, and think he was surprised that it was a person. No, he's devastated at which person it is. He didn't think it would be his young daughter. I, I, I think he, he expected to sacrifice someone from his own household. He just didn't think it would be his daughter, probably a servant, probably you know, one of the people coming out to get the, the path ready or carry his bags or whatever else. But then, if I'm right, and this is what he was planning, this is awful. What do we make of it? Because he's deliberately offering a sacrifice of a person from his household to the Lord. Well, I think there's a few things here that Jephthah's done, and we need to hear them because these are things that still we need to be challenged by and think about. Firstly, I want to say that there was a tongue problem going on with Jephthah. Tongue as in that thing. I mentioned last week... If you were here, I think you can split the Jephthah story, chapters 10, 11, 12, into five sections. The three chapters are all about Jephthah and the Ammonites. You can split it up, though, into five clear, distinct sections. And in each of those five, it's a conversation that's at the heart of it. The tongue is used in each of those sections. It's not just a a conversation, actually. It's a negotiation that goes on in every single one of the five. And so in chapter 10, as the section begins, Israel is pleading with God, please come and help us from the Ammonites. We know we've turned our back on you, but please help. And God's not sure he will. And there's a negotiation that goes on between the Israelites and God. Then the next four of the sections have Jephthah himself involved in a negotiation. So the second section is when the elders of Gilead come and say, you've got to be our leader. And, and um, uh, Jephthah negotiates with them and gets a good deal out of it, out of that negotiation. The next negotiation in the third section is Jephthah with the king of the Ammonites and they negotiate about what's going to happen. And then in our passage today, there are two distinct parts. The first is a negotiation between Jephthah and God as he says, God, if you give me the victory, I'll give you a sacrifice. And then there's a negotiation between Jephthah and the Ephraimites. So these negotiations go on all the way through. Uh, but as the, so what's going on is you've got Jephthah talking. Jephthah talks a lot. Jephthah's described as a mighty warrior. I'd describe him as a mighty talker. He is a big talker. He's wordy. I would describe Jephthah as someone who's got the gift of the gab. Have you ever met people with the gift of the gab? They, they can just talk. They're very persuasive. What else are they? They usually use their tongues to control situations. They're used to being able to use their tongues to get the result they want. To, to make a situation better, to manipulate another person in a different way, to control by their tongue. But as the, as the book of James warns us, the tongue can get us into trouble as human beings. I don't know if you've ever thought about it before. Have a think about all the things that the Bible calls sin that are a direct result of our tongues. Gossip, grumbling, lying, blasphemy, boasting, ungodly words, unkind words. I could go on and on. All those things just from our tongues. And as I say all those things, do you go, whoops, that's me. Lying, gossiping. I'm trying to make sure I don't catch anyone's eye here and you think I'm naming you in a blasphemy. Uh, all those, 
I'm on that list multiple times. I know I am. In fact, some, there have been periods in my Christian life where as I've been praying about my own holiness, I haven't prayed about anything else except the tongue, not because there's not other areas in my life that I need to, to try to sort out, but because my tongue has caused such problems. The tongue is very dangerous. The only encouragement I have is the scriptures seem to tell me I'm not alone in that because the tongue is difficult for all of us. If you've ever felt like that and, and the tongue is, but you know it's difficult for you, uh, meditate on a verse in Psalm 141 verse 3. If you know that verse, you'll, you'll know it in your head and your heart. Psalm 141 verse 3, Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. It's a great prayer to, to ask. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. The tongue can be very difficult and there's a tongue problem here. But the particular problem of the tongue that befalls Jephthah here is specific. He tries to negotiate with God. In verse 30, we find the beginning of this negotiation and the first word tells us there's going to be a problem. What's the first word? If. Anything beginning with if, if you do this, God, I'll do that, that's trying to negotiate with God and it's a problem because Jephthah is trying to coerce God. If you do this, I will do that. That's trying to control him, manipulate him. Who should you never negotiate with? We straight away think terrorists, don't we? Terrorists, maybe. God. We shouldn't try and negotiate with God because it's us trying to control God. Uh, people sometimes think, well, didn't Abraham negotiate with God? Very different. Abraham's not talking about himself or looking after himself. He's worried about other people. And it's a whole different situation. Jephthah's worried about himself. Give me the victory. I will give you this. It's wrong thinking. But people try to do it with God all the time. If I give this much money, God, then you give me this much. If you get me out of this situation, God, then I will dedicate my life for the, to you for the rest of my life. It's bartering, it's negotiating with God. It's never to be the attitude that we have. The attitude that Christians are to have with God is the, the attitude that we actually sang last week. What did we sing? Trust and obey. Remember we sang that last week? A lot of people kind of uh, look down on that song. song. They, they just see it as a, a kind of old children's chorus. It's a great song. Trust and obey for there's no other way. That's the whole Christian life in a nutshell. Trust and obey. Trust is faith. Obey is repentance. Faith and repentance are the whole heart and, and, and uh, completeness of the Christian life. In fact, if you don't get anything else out of the sermon this morning, just remember that. Trust and obey. That's how we're to live. Not negotiate. Trust the promises of God and obey his ways. That's the Christian life. We've got to be careful in the way we speak to God. We don't negotiate. Now, people who have a problem with the tongue often have, I, this is my experience, an accompanying problem of listening. They're not very good listeners, often people who've got a problem with the tongue. Uh, Jephthah fits into that because he should have known that God had already spoken about offering human sacrifices. In the book of Leviticus and in the book of Deuteronomy, God spoke absolutely clearly and repeatedly against offering human sacrifices. He had said that it was a detestable and evil practice. And so you're still left with, why did Jephthah offer this? Even if he makes a mistake and negotiates when he shouldn't have negotiated, why would he do this? Now it's not spelt out in the text, why does it? But I think it's very, very clear. Because it's not just Jephthah's problem, it's the problem, the main problem, going through the whole book of Judges. What's Jephthah done and what's he doing? 
He's acting like the people groups around him. What did the Ammonites do? They sacrificed children and they negotiated with their little g-gods. And he's been living amongst them for so long and taking on their ways that now he's doing it. He slipped into it. That is exactly what's going on. He's 18 years of Ammonite rule and he's now living like them. There was a hint of it last week, I think. Remember it mentioned Chemosh, the Moabite god. That was the god that the Ammonites sacrificed children to. A warning from Jephthah from this passage for you and I should be, that we need to heed is a warning of taking on the culture and society around us instead of the word of God leading us forward in terms of what we know and believe and how we live. The voice, that's what he'd done. The voice of the day, the morals, the standards, the practices of the society around him influenced him more than the word of God. He'd started thinking in their patterns, taking on their ways, probably not even knowing he was doing it. It's not just a problem for Jephthah and back then. It's still a danger for us today. It's why we need the word of God. It's why we need to spend time in it, why we need to study it and inhale it. We don't push spending time in the Word of God here at St Stephen's because it's a box to tick for Christians or because it's a, it's a task you should accomplish. It's because we need it. Otherwise, social media will speak to us far longer in a day than the Bible will. Otherwise, the news that we find in newspapers and on TV and online will inform us of how we think of this world far more than the Bible will. Otherwise, the media will influence how we see things and how we live far more than the teaching of the apostles because we hear it more and we don't even know it. We don't even realise the place where we've got now warped thinking about money and materialism because we've imbibed the culture around us instead of seeing what the scriptures teach where we've got warped thinking on sex and relationships because we imbibe the society around us instead of seeing what the Lord thinks, where we get things wrong about hospitality and humility and who Jesus is because we take on what the wisdom of the world instead of the word of God. That was the problem of Jephthah and it was the problem throughout the whole book of Judges. You've got to spend time in the word. Can I encourage you that this morning? You've got to. If you don't spend time in the Word, you'll be shaped by the world. Spend time in the Word or be shaped by the world. And if you know you've drifted from that, even if I'm saying that to you this morning and you think, oh my goodness, I'm not in it the same way, get back to it. It's too important not to. Do you see the consequences? If you find the Bible hard to read, a lot of us do, I, I don't really get much out of it, or... You're too weak, to, you, you lack self-discipline to spend time in the Word because you, you just find it hard on it. Then meet up with other people to do it. It's why we push small groups. It's why we push one-to-ones because they can help you understand it and they hold you accountable to I'm, I'm, I'm making sure I'm into it, I'm doing it. But you've got to do it. Those are some of the, the, the challenges from Jephthah here. It's a tragedy, isn't it? What he, what he did as a man of God and yet he did because of the tongue because he uh, tried to negotiate with God, because he was living like the others around him. But I want to finish this morning just very quickly by looking at the difference you and I have if we've got Jesus as our judge instead of Jephthah. 
I said last week that seeing Jephthah as a judge, as remember what a judge is, God's appointed rescuer or deliverer of his people, seeing Jephthah in that role should make you and I even more thankful that Jesus is the one who's won the victory and saved us. And it's even more clear in these verses. And so I want to say this morning, you and I have the privilege, you and I have the the delight and the joy of having Jesus as our judge. And it is those things. And I want to encourage us to be even more thankful of that as I just point out a couple of comparisons and contrasts between Jephthah and Jesus that I'm sure we're supposed to get from this passage. Think about Jephthah for a moment. What did he do? He negotiated with God trying to control him. If you do this, I'll do that. Jesus said, yet not my will but your will be done. What did Jephthah do? He offered as a sacrifice a person from his household. What did Jesus do? He laid down his own life to save you and I. How did Jephthah win the victory? He uh, grabbed a sword and led a battle and um, killed the enemies. What did Jesus do with his enemies? He prayed for them as he hung on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the judge that you and I have. That's the one that we follow and have the privilege and delight to follow. And when you know you've got Jesus as your judge, it changes the whole way you view God. If you think you've got to negotiate with God, then what's your view of God? Your view of God is that he's stingy or that he's um, reluctant. You've You've got to bargain things out of him. When you've got Jesus as your judge, you know that God abundantly pours out love and mercy and grace on you. It's not someone you've got to barter with. When you uh, think that God is someone you've got to negotiate with, you think you've got a part to play. If you do this, I'll do that. But when you've got Jesus as your judge, you know the only part we've got to play is saying thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for everything you've won for us in the Lord Jesus. It's a completely different mindset of God, who he is, what he's done for us, what our relationship with him is if Jesus is our judge. That's how we know that he loves us. That's how we know he delights in us and gives us so generously, pays the price we can't even fathom uh, so willingly, all for you and me. Think about the victory. The victory of Jephthah was great. He won a battle, and, but it was immediately compromised by another battle with the Ephraimite. It was a partial victory at best. How different with Jesus. The victory that your judge and my judges won us is complete The resurrection is the sign of the totality of it, the perfection of it. Because it shows that if you trust in Jesus, you don't just have something in this life that can make you feel a bit bit braver and uh, happier. Death's been conquered. Your rescue carries on even beyond the grave into the new creation. Your rescue is complete and total. I don't think we go on enough today about how good the new creation's going to be. It's going to be magnificent. Sin gone, tears finished, death at an end, pain over with. The good creation that you and I enjoy here, unspoiled. A relationship with God that isn't mucked up by me. Relationship with other peoples that is totally loving and faithful and loyal. It's going to be wonderful. And Jephthah's daughter will be there because of Jesus, our judge. This is a tricky passage. Jephthah did an awful thing. But he was a man of great faith and God used him to save people. So it's hard for us to understand. But one of the things we should get from Jephthah is a different view of Jesus as our judge. 
And when you know how great he is and how great the victory is he's won for us, then again, all we can do is say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to think on this very difficult passage. We thank you for challenging us. Most of all, we thank you for your Son, our Judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, who laid down his life, who won the victory, who's rescued and delivered us, your people. And we pray that you would help us continue to desire to take the good news of him to a world that so desperately needs it. And we ask this in his powerful name. Amen.